Support this podcast and keep us going. Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join up. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 986. Today we have feedback from Charlie on our episode on sword and sorcery and sexism, which is an episode that he first occasioned. Thanks for writing in, Charlie. Here's what you had to say. I also plan to have the heroine join the hero in parts of the journey, and absolutely do not want them to find each other in one another's arms on the night before they go to battle and one of them dies. That trope is useless as tits on a boar. But I still want that... (laughs) Hey, female boars have tits. A boar is a male. Oh, it is? Yes. It is not just a wild pig. It is, it is a really? male pig. Really? It's a wild male pig? Okay, yeah. I thought it was a wild pig subspecies. Okay, never mind. But I still want that female counterpart to be something that readers and me as a writer would enjoy on the page without sexual tension or sexual actions. Um, I'm going to break here and... That's actually... The... Oh, that's the whole thing? Yeah. Uh, so I have a really, really good recommendation for how to do this. A template. Check out Decoder Ring Theater's series Black Jack Justice. Oh, yes. The first uh, two seasons are a bit wonky because the actors are still finding the characters' voices and the acting isn't great. But after that, it gets really, really good. I mean, it, it's it's fun in the first couple of seasons, but it becomes sublime about uh, episode 15 or 16, because mm. they did like six episode seasons. And it, I mean, the series itself is fun and uh, clever and well-written, but the dynamic between the main characters, who are a male and female detective who ha- share a detective agency and respect each other tremendously, but absolutely hate each other. And in the in the worst possible way, they just don't like each other. There's a strong degree of mutual contempt, and it is not a cover for sexual tension. Mm-hmm. And it's done very, very well. And I will say that in the first couple of seasons that um, Greg was writing it as if it could go into a um, completed sexual tension, but... But he never intended for it to, as he revealed in the season one right. spectacular. Yeah. But but he, in the first few seasons, it felt like it could go that way, maybe, but didn't, and it worked really, really well. Really well, yeah. Um, and eventually the, um, the two main characters had their own romantic arcs that were very satisfying. One was beautiful and life-affirming, and the other was kind of tragic. But uh, in both cases, it worked very, very well. So that would be one to look at as a model. And the episodes are only half an hour, so it won't take too long to To get through the the whole series, yeah. Um, Weirdly, the Encyclopedia Brown books are popping into mind. Encyclopedia Brown had... He he never had a thing with Sally. He never had a thing with Sally, but they were... But she, she was in three or four mysteries every every volume and she was smart and they had great chemistry and there was never a hint that they would someday be boyfriend and girlfriend. They were just pals mm-hmm. and it worked really well. Mm-hmm. And frankly, at, at the age that they are, you, you know, would expect a little bit of, of boyfriend, well, girlfriend well, energy to they, start. They were just a little bit too young for that. Just a little bit. 
just a titch. They were they were too young to get to to get actually get involved, but they weren't too young to start thinking of each other that way. Okay, but um, there are also the age that a boy and a girl are not likely to see their best male friend or their best female friend as a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Right. They're... Because boyfriends and girlfriends are like something foreign and bizarre and unattainable. Right. At... And you're, at that age, your best friend sort of is inside the incest barrier. Yeah. Yeah. So e- even when kids are, are like best friends that could someday get together, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen until they're older mm-hmm. and they've already had a couple of girlfriends and boyfriends that were outside their friend zone. Right. And in most cases, it uh, in real life, it doesn't happen if the uh, best friend was the best friend during... Uh, the window between about age 8 and age 12, Mm. because that's the point at which the brain sort of sets the incest switch Mm -hmm. and says people who were siblings, uh, social siblings in this area, are not mating options. Mm -hmm. And you saw this with the uh, Israeli uh, kibbutzim. Mm -hmm. The whole experiment fell apart because all the kids that were raised together in group families were not interested in each other whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so they all went out into the world to find mates, and the kibbutzim fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of great studies in history on this kind of thing. And I think that happens a lot in uh, really small communes in the U.S. as well. The ones that that start out for religious or ethical reasons, mm-hmm. they tend to die out after a couple of generations because people leave in order to find partners rather than bringing partners back in. Yeah, and the way the Amish manage this is they practice some fairly rigid sex segregation after about age 10. Yeah. Um, And then they have some very strict rules about exogamy, like how many cousins away you have to be Mm -hmm. to breed in. If if you have any question about why it is that cultures develop sex segregation in early childhood when it doesn't seem to matter, Mm -hmm. this This is is why. why. And it's more important the smaller a community you live in and the fewer options your children will have as adults to... To keep the sexes estranged from one another. Yeah. Yep. And it doesn't matter in our society, mostly because most of us are not living in or marrying in the small town that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. I I frankly know like two people that grew up with the partner that they eventually had. Mm -hmm. And and that's it. (laughs) And in in both cases, they weren't close. They they weren't interacting closely until they started dating in junior high. Yeah. Um, So they were still outside the incest barrier Mm -hmm. as far as their own brains were concerned. So um, yeah, it can totally be done and it can be done really, really well and very, very satisfyingly. And um, in the case of you're doing sword and sorcery, one of the things that they could do, if you want to maintain the sort of frisson of the last night before the battle, but Mm -hmm. without going into they wind up in each other's arms and then one dies, you could have them visit a brothel together, like like warriors often do. Oh, yes. Um, Or they could each have their main squeeze on the side. Mm-hmm. That they're with, and then they go off, and maybe one or the other of them dies in battle, or while they're away, their main squeeze, uh, the town gets raided, and they're injured or killed or whatnot. So you can still get the the melodrama and the tragedy without having that really formulaic set of beats that you're trying to avoid. Mm. Yeah. 
So thank you very much for the feedback, and I hope this has been helpful. We'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners.